Hey everyone, welcome back to Bible Discoveries, the weekend show where we aim to discuss big questions that come up as we're reading through the Bible this year. Uh, we also aim to answer and discuss some of your questions. So as you're reading through the Bible, or if you already have Bible questions that you can think of off the top of your head, please pop them in the comment section or email us uh, because we would love to have the opportunity to discuss your questions on the show. But if this is your first time here, my name's Corey and I'm joined with my husband, Matlock. Hey, Matlock. Hey, how you doing? Doing Good. well. Good. Well, today we're reading, mm -hmm. which is really important, Joshua 9 to Judges 9. Indeed. Yes. So we're right in the time period of the conquest and that moves into what happens then in those next generations after Joshua. Now, uh, if you haven't read these chapters, we also release a 10 minute recap. So you can go watch that really quickly and kind of get caught up on where we are in the scripture reading. Okay, but today our big question is really going to be, to what level did the Israelites actually succeed in the conquest of Canaan? Because we're in this time period of the judges. So, so did they succeed? What did that look like? What does the Bible say about it? We're going to talk about that. We're also going to be taking a look at some apocryphal documents like the book of Jasher. We are going to be asking whether or not the Israelites were guilty of enslavement of other peoples. And we're going to be talking about a couple of the judges as well, specifically a very interesting character named Jael or Yael, depending on how you pronounce it. And of course, good old Gideon. There's lots of, lots of stuff with Gideon there. So that's what we're doing today. Awesome. I'm in. Yes. Okay. I have to be. Yeah, you have to be. You're here. <laughs> yeah. You're stuck. You're yeah, there. That's right. Okay. I'm going to ask right. you the first question then. Sure. I'm okay. In. So this question is a Bible question from Joshua 10, uh, verse 13. All right. And the question itself is what was the book of Jasher and why does the Bible reference it? So that reference is in Joshua chapter 10. Yeah, I recall because it's about the sun standing still. Yeah, and I'll go back and I'll read chapter uh, verses 12 and 13. Perfect. It says this, On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jasher. Right. So what we know historically is that we don't have the, the original book of Jasher anymore. <laughs> it's gone. Right. It's gone to time. Unfortunately. Right. Uh, but we, we, what was discovered in about, I think, the 1700s, or was it 1800s, either way, was a book of Jasher. It, it was discovered in Israel, and which is, we don't really know the exact time, but it dates to, they think, roughly around 500 BC, or some people even argue 500 AD. Right. But basically, it's like, okay, this book is ancient, but we can't really trust how it was vetted or if it was edited or anything about it. So it's basically completely yeah, we can't, untrustworthy. We can't track it through, right. we can't and track textual variants through time to see right. what was added, when it was added and stuff like that. Ex like we can with the Bible. That's right. So that's the reason why you don't really see people talking about it in church history. Right. Right. So it's like, it's kind of like a recent discovery, but it was, was mentioned in the Bible, Jashar, as someone would call it, uh, which just means upright. So, um, and what's really interesting about it is that based on, you know, this later text that we have, it's just another retelling of the events that happened in Genesis, uh, in Judges, and stuff like that. 
and basically stops at around Samuel, from what I recall. Mm -hmm. Now, I've read this years ago, this this thing. It's really fun. Like, it's just... Wait, so when you say a retelling, you don't mean it's just retelling Genesis Oh, no, on. sorry. It's actually getting into there's detail. There's a lot of extra yeah, details. There's, there's a lot of extra you, it's details. It's just a retelling. Right, but yeah, yeah, no. yeah. So it's getting into the details about these things. I mean, like, for instance, when Abraham is taking Isaac up the mountain, it's like yeah. Satan is there trying to right, involved in the process and stuff like right. that where it's like okay and there's a lot of like stories about abraham's origins and his life in ur and stuff like that yes so there's a lot of stories yeah, Abra about biblical figures abraham is just like the man he's very this, cool in, in yeah. yeah like he was going to get thrown into the furnace right and the whole thing the rashak meshach and bendigo stuff like he basically is like an archetype for all these things to come that's why some people are like okay we can see maybe where these things have been edited um, Enoch well, and just is, like written from looking back at yes. the Bible characters and then trying to fill in details that the scripture left out. Right. So it's a really, it makes for a really fun read, it, but in terms of taking it seriously, historically, right. no. Right, exactly. For example, Elijah is another fun part. So Elijah, right? A, a fire, a, a chariot of fire. Yeah. But Enoch, chariot of ice. So it's kind of like, okay, it's fun. It's, you're, you're tying in here, but it's like, okay, but can I really trust this you see what I'm saying right. so it's it's kind of like a fan fiction based off of tradition yes and it, it, it is fun and even the, the story fun. of Sodom and Gomorrah is just like I feel like if it I feel like I, I want it to be real because it's, <laughs> it's almost like too accurate it explains it yeah it explains like this the, the perception of how deep evil can get like transforming things can get into it now but it's really interesting if you have the time if you can read it for fun Knowing that you can't trust it. But anyways, so the question here, that's when I see this, like, why does the Bible reference it? I, it assumes... This older book of Joshua. This older book, this yeah. Older not, book not this, yeah, this right. older book of Not this upright. untrusted book that I'm talking about, but this older book. It, it essentially, it suggests that it can be trusted to some extent. Because it's like, look, have you ever read the book of Jasher? It, it says this too. Right. Right. So... it Basically, this is saying that this book of Jasher recorded the event of the... Israelite battle with the Amorites right. and recording Joshua's words. Exactly. And it gets into more detail about that. So basically it's like, hey, you, you guys have read this. Just remember that. It's in there. Uh, and it's unfortunate that we've lost. And there's many other books like Jasher. The Bible says, hey, have you ever heard of the Acts of Solomon? Or it goes into the King's List. There's a whole bunch of books that the Bible references. Yeah. Once we get into Kings and Chronicles specifically, it's going to reference books that were written or records that were written, especially by different prophets of God related to the reigns of the kings, which is very cool, but we no longer have those anymore. And it's it's pulling quotations and historical events from those as well. So. Right. But again, not scripture, but it would have been, it would be pretty cool be awesome. if some of those had survived, survived. because yeah. remember the bible isn't an exhaustive history it's not aiming to tell us um everything that happened to israel i mean even when we get into the gospels this is true for the new testament john talks about how if everything that jesus did were recorded it would fill the world right it would go up to the sky but the the history that's recorded in the bible is there for a reason it's curated for a reason um you know i've talked about it before with people about being um the, the theatrical release of a movie and then later the director's cut of a movie, which is significantly <laughs> longer, right? So the, this, the history is edited down, telling us just what we need to know for a theological purpose. Here's what happened and here's why that happens or here's what that means 
for God's work of salvation for his redemption right. history, things of that nature. And then the other text would just be history for sake of history. Which right. Is, right. Or, or history for the sake of some other reason. Right. Exactly. So, yes. it was, right. What maybe legally they required it to retract the Acts of Solomon or whatever. Right. Yeah. So definitely some of the prophets were recording just the the, right. the annals of the kings. Like right. here's what happened during Josiah's reign, for example. So, but they, there definitely could also be books that record the the visions of some of the true prophets of God because right. we see some of the books of the prophets uh, being the talked about. Yeah, and Edo, the seer, right. and stuff like that. Very so. cool. I know. it's Very so, cool. I, know, I so wish these would survive. But, I know, but they didn't. Yeah. So, so but it, what, <laughs> what, in relation to this, why does the Bible reference it? It kind of reminds me of like a very common question. So the Bible is true. It's God's word. So then why would it say, read these other sources if they're not God's word? And I think that that's kind of the question that kind of comes up in my head. Right. Um, when I see the question being laid out. Um. And I think that, for one, I think this is kind of like, oh, everything else is dead wrong. I think when you look at it from like a very black and white, where it's like, oh, the Bible is the only thing that's true, and there's no such thing as truth outside the Bible, well, that's just a misunderstanding. Totally. Right? So it's like there could be truth in other documents. just because, Absolutely. Right? And it's also not the purpose of Scripture, to, like you are saying, to contain everything. So there's a purpose within Scripture to teach about Jesus Christ and salvation, the theological elements that you're describing. So there's just a, there's more of a purpose, a theological purpose behind scripture than there is these other documents. Though they would capture like what God did, the sun standing still. Sure. Like just a different purpose. But the Bible is a specially arranged document that was inspired by God. Ultimately, I mean, it has many purposes. And we read about that in the New Testament, right? In Timothy, um, for for teaching and, 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 and learning sound doctrine and fully equipping the man of God, right? For, for righteous works. So there's a lot of, uh, there's, there's a lot of reasons that the scripture is written, but the overarching theme of the scripture is, is telling us about Christ, about God's redemptive work through Christ and what is to come, what is to expect, right. what is the conclusion of his work. So, you know, what makes the Bible distinct from other books is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the protection of God over the book, uh, instilling it with his power and, 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 you know, his authority for the sake of that message. Right. And, of Christ. And you think, look at it like, okay, so Bible's largely narrative. So who's the main character? Well, it's God. Yeah. God's the main character. Jesus Christ is the main character, right? He's also, towards us, is in a sense, is, is the antagonist as well to a lot of people who do evil. But apart from that, so God's the protagonist of, of that. Whereas the book of Jasher, I can't know for sure, but some of these other books, sounds like, you know, the Acts of Solomon, for, for instance, it's just about Solomon. Like, right. That's what it's what about. What he did. That's right. So it's not really about the prophetic utterances that lead to or speak of salvation through Jesus Christ right. or anything of that nature. And definitely there were other prophecies right. that existed and were true oh. outside of the Bible. Oh, yeah, for by sure. The prophets. And so God's... It's like God, we said, the Bible is curated. That's right. So then you reason. have to ask yourself, okay, so God's word is speaking to, through prophets that are not recorded, but they clearly existed. Mm -hmm. and they're clearly there. And so it's like, okay, so God, there's truth outside the Bible because, because the spirit is not limited. The spirit of truth is not limited to the Bible. Agreed. Right. And I think that's just the basic way to look but at it. But the Bible is a special work. Yes, it is. Undoubtedly. <laughs> yes, it is. God breathes. It's right. That's yep. what Timothy says, 316. All right. Well, I think that's it. I don't know. I like, think so. I yeah. think that kind of covers some of the broad bases. There. Yeah, I think so. All right. So let me ask you a question. Sure. All right. 
So it's a Bible question. Okay. Judges 1. Weren't the Israelites guilty of enslaving the Canaanites? And let's compare that to Judges 1, verses 28, 33, and 35. Okay. Judges 1, 20. Okay. So this is kind of giving an overview of what happened. It goes back and forth, you know, Joshua's past, and then Joshua's not past, and I mean passed away. Um, so it's kind of going back and forth in the first few chapters of Judges. Okay, Judges 1.28. Um, okay, I'm going to just read 27. Sure. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Beth Shan or Tanakh or Dor or Ibleem or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. Verse 28, when Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Neither or nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Uh, so it goes, oh, neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahalal. So these Canaanites lived among them. But Zebulun did subject them to forced labor. So that was... 30, 30, wasn't even mentioned there. And then 33, oh, more of the same. Um, the Naphtalites too lived among Canaanite inhabitants of the land and those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Aneth became forced laborers for them. And verse 35, and the Amorites were determined also to hold out in Mount Hares, Ajalon, and Shalbim. But when the power of the tribes of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. Okay, so a lot of forced labor. So the question is then, weren't the Israelites guilty of enslaving the Canaanites? It certainly does sound like this here. But when we keep reading in Judges, we realize that what the Israelites were actually doing was uh, should not be seen as enslavement. So uh, they were creating covenants with the Canaanite people and with these other people. So this covenant would have been um, a suzerain vassal treaty, essentially. So the Israelites were seen to own the land, to protect the land, to be the lawgivers of the land. And then these other people were allowed to live on the land under certain conditions. Uh, and, you know, these kinds of treaties existed in the ancient world all the time. In fact, Israel, we should see we should see the, the the covenant that Israel has with God giving them the promised land as a suzerain vassal treaty. So God says, here's the promised land. It's my land. You can live on it as long as you abide by these terms of the covenant. If you break the terms of the covenant, you will no longer be living on my land. So Israel then sets up this same kind of covenant with these people groups that they cannot successfully drive out of the land. Now, how do I justify that interpretation? Because it just says that they forced, forced them into labor. There's two reasons. There's two reasons why I believe that we should see it like this. Later on in the time period of the kings, Solomon also would force labor upon his own people in order to build up cities. He was not seen as enslaving his own people, but rather taxing, requiring a certain amount of labor from them. So that's one thing. But the main reason why I think we should interpret this as a suzerain vassal treaty rather than mass enslavement has to do with what happens next in Judges. So in Judges chapter two, it says this, the angel of the Lord, 
went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you and their gods will become snares to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud and they called that place Bochum. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. They had already, so they had made, the angel of the Lord is clear that they have made covenants. I told you not to make covenants and you did make covenants. So they have made covenants with the people. And the problem with that is just like Joshua, when the Israelites got tricked into making a covenant with the people of Gibeon, even though they were tricked into making that covenant, Joshua still upheld the terms of that covenant because it would have been a disgrace to not uphold the covenant. Uh, you couldn't just break the covenant. You had pledged that you would protect these people. And so we see this happening here. We don't see the Israelites then going back on the covenants that they have with these people. They mourn and they offer sacrifices to God. So I, I believe because of this, because of what comes right after Judges chapter one, that we should see this forced labor on the Canaanites as being part of these covenants that they made with them. So that's what I would say. I think it's a pretty good answer. We shouldn't see it as slavery, <laughs> but we should see it as forced labor right. uh, in, a, in a covenantal structure. Yeah. Much like how Solomon would leverage his position as king to tax labor. Right. So Israel leverages their superiority in warfare, but rather than killing the Canaanites or driving the Canaanites out of the land, those were their two options, force them to leave or kill them, they decided to make covenants with them instead and utilize them as forced laborers. Right, and that doesn't go well for them either. No, and that, and the angel run. of the Lord is like, this is bad. It's a snare for you, it's a trap for you. I left them here to test you. Will you follow the covenant? Will you drive them out? Right. Or exterminate them if they, if they, if they fight against you? Right. Will you defeat them or drive them out? Or will you make covenants with them and eventually worship their gods? Right. And unfortunately, that's what Israel chose. Right. And that is ultimately what happens too. They end up worshiping yeah. these gods. And so, yeah, you look at this. It's a like God's trying to do this to protect people. Mm -hmm. now, the, the, technically, the Canaanites can repent and change their ways, but they don't. <clears throat> yes, so, and we see that with some people. Right. We do see that, you know, obviously the main example is Rahab, but there's another case and it's on the tip of my tongue. And hopefully by the end of the show, I'll remember it. If not, I'll find it and pop it in the comments. But there's another case of a city that the Israelites need to take and they get help from an insider and they allow that man and his entire family to survive. And then he has the choice to stay with Israel or to go and he chooses to leave the land. Right. And there you go. There you go. There you go. Yes, I think it's pretty clear cut. Yeah. For what's going on there. All right. Well, I have another question for you. Sure. That's a viewer question. Viewer question. All right, from I Teresa. All right. So, hi, according to Judges 4, I understand the tent part where you're saying that the people or women in, in the tent cannot be defeated. I don't understand the part about why jail gives to Sarah milk instead of water. Could you explain if there is any significance? Thank you. Right. Smiley face. 
Right, right, right. I am this trying is too to nuanced find... for me. <laughs> I have Okay, yeah. so so what's going on in this is this um <clears throat> Judges chapter four is talking about the judge Deborah um and the physical deliverer Barak. <clears throat> it's really interesting because normally in judges, well often in judges, the the judge is also the physical deliverer, but because Deborah is a woman, she's seen as the judge and the prophet who would anoint the physical deliverer of Israel, but because the physical deliverer of Israel was very reluctant, Deborah also became a physical deliverer. She went to war and then God allowed the actual physical deliverer to be another woman, Jael or Yael. So that's what's going on in Judges chapter four is that <clears throat> Barak and Deborah get Sisera, the commander, uh, he's the commander for the king of Hatzor, who Israel is fighting against at this point, because the king of Hatzor is subjecting the Israelites and fighting against them. So they get Sisera, the commander of the army of Hatzor, on the run. So they're hunting him down. This is a good thing, mm. right? All that Barak has to do now is kill the commander. And Sisera escapes to, uh, he's on foot now, and he finds a tent of the people, the Kenites. Now, the Kenites were descendants of Moses' in-laws, uh, and they were living peacefully among Israel. But the Bible also tells us that they specifically had a peace treaty with the king of Hatzor. So Sisera knew, they're on my side. Right. Right? So then Sisera stops in at the tent, and Jael, uh, this Kenite woman, <clears throat> welcomes him in. He asks for water. She gives him milk. He falls asleep, and while he's asleep, she kills him. And then when Barak comes riding by and Deborah comes riding by, she's like, come here, I'll show you the man you seek. And he's dead. Right. And Jael has this, like, power moment of, wow, right. that's that's impressive. Well, yeah, I, I... So... Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say, the, it sounds like she gave him up to put him to sleep. But <laughs> Okay. No. Incorrect. Yeah. That's funny, yeah. though. That's yeah, yeah, funny. Yeah, I just joke. But I yeah. think the sheer exhaustion of a bat of the battle, probably <laughs> running for his life, is probably what made him fall asleep. Yeah. But okay, so she's asking why Jail would have given him milk instead of water. But I, I wanted to look at because I know. In in chapter five, it's it says that she gave him milk with curds. I saw, there it is. Oh, I just saw right. it as I turned the page. Okay, uh, uh, Judges five verse twenty five says twenty four and twenty five. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed of tent dwelling women. He asked for water, and she gave him milk in a bowl fit for nobles. She brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent peg her right hand for the workman's hammer. Right. Okay, so there's a couple things going on going on here in the song of Deborah and Barak where it talks about her giving him curdled milk. Milk this was this was uh in in a dish fit for nobles. So this should be seen most bible commentators talk about how this should be seen as a way of honoring your guest. So it was more luscious than even just giving milk. Um <clears throat> so treating him like, don't worry, I'm honoring the covenant of peace that my people have with your people. You're safe here. There's this mothering, honoring element of JL that was obviously for show to get him to sleep so that she could kill him in warfare, join the war. Um, 
However, also just from a practical standpoint, we know that the, the Kenites were tent dwellers they, and they raised cattle and they raised sheep and they raised goats. Um, that's what they did for a living. So it's entirely possible that milk was more easily accessible to them than water. They're camping out in the wilderness, depending on what time of year it is, milk even, in some situations, milk even would have been safer for them to drink because you don't always know you can get tainted water. But a lot of times animals won't get sick from drinking the water, but people will. So if animals drink the water, they don't get sick, they can still produce milk. So there's a level of practicality that yeah. could be here as well. But because Judges 5 in the Song of Deborah and Barak, Caesar is offering it in this gift of nobles. They're at least poetically being like, she treated him like a king. She treated him yeah. as the terms of their covenant, honoring him only to... The intentions are there. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good good answer. So yeah, I mean, there's a couple things going on. Yeah, I think that's but good. that's what I would say. <laughs> all right, well, I got another question for you. Does okay. it make you this day all about you? Um, <laughs> all about the judges. Yeah, so why would Gideon create a golden ephod? Ah, uh, yes. The golden ephod. Gideon. He starts so well and ends so, so bad. Yes. Like there are some judges in the book of Judges that start out bad. So you know they're going to end bad too. But Gideon, I mean, he, he, he receives the word from the angel of the Lord. He tests the, the, the message of God, which I mean, granted, yes, it shows that he is not faithful, that he doesn't really know a lot about God. Uh, we see that he doesn't really know a lot about God right away because he's like, oh, I've seen the angel of the Lord. I'm going to die. And you're like, wait a second. That wasn't the belief ever. If you saw the glory of God, the presence of God, yeah, it was kind of a miracle that you were alive. But the angel of the Lord has shown up several times in Israel's history and no one's ever died from it. I mean, think Joshua uh, and the Israelites getting ready to go into the land of Canaan. Joshua sees the angel of the Lord. Think about just after Joshua dies, when the angel of the Lord goes up from Gilgal to Bochum and speaks with the people. Yeah. No one dies, right? <laughs> like it's uh, Gideon, but it shows us that he right. doesn't have great knowledge of the ways of God. So because the Israelites have descended so far into apostasy and into idol worship, they've lost a lot of their, of their actual understanding of who God is and the law. And we can see this right away in the case of Gideon, because the first task that the angel of the Lord has him do is to tear down the altar of Baal and the Asherah pole. So these idols that his father, Gideon's father, has actually set up in the town. And he does it. But what I think is really interesting, <clears throat> I want to grab it for us. Because I have to, I, I should have, I should have prepped this early because there's some really interesting things going on. Yes. With well, Gideon. The, in the beginning, <clears throat> I'm trying to find the quote for you. But it talks about how when, when Gideon goes to fight the enemy, mm -hmm. it specifically says that God clothes Gideon yes. with himself. And in, in my English translation, in the NIV, it says God comes on Gideon. Like he, 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 his presence comes on Gideon. Uh, but the, apparently that phrase in Hebrew can literally be translated clothed. 
God clothed Gideon with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so Gideon goes into battle and defeats it. Now, what's really what makes the ephod then extremely ironic, because then at the end of his life, after he's delivered Israel, Gideon then prostitutes himself and all of Israel by creating holy clothing. Remember what the ephod was. The ephod for Israel was supposed to be an outfit that was worn only by the high priest to minister before God, to make restitution between God and Israel, to be that go-between. Now, by this point in Israel's history, many priests are wearing ephods. We see other priests wearing ephods and judges, and even we see King David in 2 Samuel wearing a priestly linen ephod. But regardless, the ephod was a piece of clothing that, what, that had um, religious connotations. It was for the high priest, which is, so it's very intensely ironic that the Bible says that God clothed Gideon with his, with his presence in order to defeat the battle. But then at the end of Gideon's life, he creates a holy piece of clothing with which he, his family, and all Israel will prostitute themselves. They will begin to worship it as an idol. Uh, but I think, I think even more to the question, we see Gideon having many wives and having 70 sons. That is a lot, and who knows how many daughters. That is a lot of people. He would have needed a lot of money in order to sustain that. So there's, it, it, there, it's possible here that the, the golden ephod that Gideon sets up because Israel began to worship it, they may have brought tithes and offerings to it that Gideon then would have used to support his family. Uh, that's a possibility. It's possible that by creating the golden ephod, Gideon was re reminding himself of the angel of the Lord experience where he believed he saw God face to face. And perhaps he knew that idol worship was, or idol creation was spoken, uh, spoken against in the Mosaic law. So maybe he just created an ephod and displayed it on a piece of wood or something or displayed it uh, to kind of get around that rule. Or perhaps this, perhaps he did create an idol and, and drape the ephod on the idol as well. Perhaps he wore the ephod. The weight that's given for the ephod here is very heavy. So it kind of seems like it may include an idol as well. So there's all these different considerations yeah. that we could take, but it's, it's interesting to think about, isn't it? Yeah, what do you think? No, it really is. The fact that, yeah, the irony there is really important because usually when there's divine irony in this type of sense, mm -hmm. it alludes to God's judgment in a way, and, or it's always connected with God's judgment. Um, and in this case specifically, something that was, you know, God, he was clothed in God's, in God, basically clothed, he was clothed, um, in righteousness, like the Holy Spirit was, which is really interesting to think that he would make an, even intentionally or unintentionally, make an idol uh, about uh, through those clothes. So what's really interesting, I think, about that is that um, you have Gideon making 
something like, even in the sense of where it's unintentional, where it's like he just makes something as a memorial to this moment or to remind the Israelites, let's say, about this thing that won. Yep. But through even the memorial process, it becomes a snare. And you see this with um, later on in the text with uh, the bronze serpent, where the bronze serpent at first, you know, you stare at it, your sins are forgiven, right? You won't die from the from the fight. Not sins are forgiven, but you won't die from the from the serpents that are biting everyone. Yeah. And then eventually, during the time of Hezekiah, people are offering incense to it, and it just says offering incense, right, as a form of worship, and they're mm-hmm. sort of worshiping this thing mm-hmm. as if somehow it can, you know, spare them from death, or I don't know. It was the object mm-hmm. themselves. So you have this very similar case here. But either way, whether or not it started as, oh, it, we, we pedestal this up as something and then it becomes an object of worship. Yeah, and it absolutely could have been just a memorial because um, Gideon asks the men to give them all of the earrings um, from the uh, <clears throat> uh, from from the people that they, they defeated, the Amalekites. And f- it's from that gold right. that he creates the ephod. It's from from the spoils of the battle right. that they won by God's power right. that he creates it. So it may have begun for him. He may not have had these malicious intentions, right. but during his lifetime, Israel still started worshiping it and he yes. still was okay and with it, was, it uh, because it says um, Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Oprah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So he right. was still alive yes. while this was happening. And it doesn't say duration or anything like that. So no. even if it was like over the course of years or even weeks, the point here is that because idol worship was so... It's kind of like putting an alcohol bottle in front of an alcoholic. It's like this alcohol... Uh, sorry, uh, idol worship is just rampant everywhere. Yeah. So then to put something that resembles... It's part of their culture. It's part of their culture that resembles idolatry or idol worship. Yeah was just not a good move to make. And then they are so hardened, they can't see the difference mm-hmm. of why this would be the case. Um, and yeah, so th- there's a lot to digest there. I wanted to, I, I found the reference. Okay, good. So I, I wanted say, to bring it yeah, up. Might as well. Finally, yeah. Judges 6 verse 34, it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiserites to follow him. Um, so that, And then he goes through Israel and and... and um, does a call to arms for some of the tribes of Israel to come and fight with him. But it's that 34, then the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. That's that word translated here in the NIV, came on, that apparently in the Hebrew is it means literally clothed. So um, the, I, I, and the author of Judges, the author of First and Second Samuel does this all the time too, but the author of Judges uh, ties the the lives of the stories of the judges together by word plays like this. Um, so this is what we miss a lot of the times in English because we're not we're reading it out of the context and we're reading it out of its original language. A lot of times we miss some of these themes that are going through the different stories of the time period of the judges, the different accounts that the author is trying to draw out for us. And a lot of it has to do with the irony of evil, yes. the irony of human evil. Where the very thing that God God does for you, you then flip it around into idol worship. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. Gideon starts out so well. <laughs> yeah. Ends so badly and continues on. I mean, then it then it continues on with his son. It's really interesting. There's a lot to explore there that I think <clears throat> for us another time. 
But yeah, even the fact that it says that word come on in clothing, with this, clothed by the Spirit, that's just so interesting. I've never heard of that. That's really interesting. I know. We gotta, yeah. You got to sit and digest it. That's I, right. I do too. I'm working on a Bible yeah. study for the judges, so oh, We're, good. it's going to be good. It's going to be a good time. <laughs> I love stuff like this. Okay, so that brings us really then back around full circle okay. to our big question of today. And I kind of, I want to discuss it because here we are at Gideon, who is this sad failure of a judge, right. all too familiar in the book of Judges. We're only on chapter nine and right, already right. we've seen such moral failure. But to what level then? Because as we wrap up Joshua, we're wrapping up the time period of the conquest of the land. Yeah. So to what level did the Israelites succeed in their mission of conquest? Right, because we already you already brought up the failures, where it's like they didn't fully drive them out. And that, right, so it's like, okay, because and they're, now they're a snare to them. Like idolatry is a, is yes. a snare. And it's, it's, it's a constant trap. And that idea of snare is that like... Um, you're trying to escape, but it's trapped you by the foot kind of thing, like a rabbit, mm -hmm. right? It's like a rabbit caught in a trap. Um, so it's like you feel like you can you can escape. You're trying to use your energy to escape, but you can't. It's not like you're in a cage. It's a little bit something different. Um, and here we have, okay, so what elements did they succeed? Well, during the time of Joshua, they successfully, and I think Joshua, at the end of Joshua, he kind of summarizes these events mm -hmm. where they... Um, they kind of recount the people that they defeated, but there's still some work to be done, so to speak, about who to drive out. Um, so I think the way to look at this, the concept of success here, is really because they didn't, because they didn't fully do it. I can't say, oh, you succeeded here and failed there. Success is usually like, oh, you reached a threshold, therefore you did it. Right. So I would say mission failure. <laughs> okay, but you know, you're almost, you, they almost succeeded. I wouldn't say succeeded in that sense. They didn't fully succeed. Um, and it's, you know, because of, because of this, because of this, it is, it is the Kings and later on, this is the, re it is from this very moment that they get judged 500 years later by the other nations. So it's like, if they just would have driven out the Canaanites, if they just would have listened to God and his instruction. Cause these guys, you know, once again, I said this last week, they were burning people at the stake. Um, like they're terrible. They're right. They're worshiping while worshiping their demons, while they're you know doing cult prostitution and burning people alive. Like it's just evil. So that's the people that they had were supposed to drive out. So when you think about that, and that is like all you had to do was just listen to God, and they don't do it. Well, their children are the one who suffer. They're like, okay, well it's convenient for me not to do this. I can make a covenant with you and we get some sort of benefit from this. But then your children are going to suffer, and it's going to take a long time. For the there's so much like demonic interference essentially to penetrate Israel's defenses of being the nation of God and to make them into idol worshippers in which God has then judged the nation. And then by judging the nation, they repent and come back and God restores them for a moment, for a moment in time. So I would say that they did not succeed, and that um the 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 point of the judges is to show you the failures. Not just the moral failures, but just like um, the spiritual failures, right? Of just Israel as a whole. Like you're saying that getting to even know, like the, the that the angel of the Lord didn't kill, like they just didn't understand his own right. history. Right. They just it was lost <clears throat> to time, and they got in this cycle. And 
of of evil and and in this cycle it's not like it's oh it's not like it's uh it's pr- like it's the same weight and scale like that like it's like a basic spiral going down it's like you're steamrolling it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger yeah. it's like it's going it's a downhill spiral yeah. things are getting worse and worse and worse until the, until judges 19 when you find that even Moses grandson is you know an apostate priest an apostate priest so it's like it's not like oh we're we're good oh we're bad oh we're good again oh we're bad it's not like that it's like no things are just getting worse and worse and worse yeah like there there's a cycle of sin and god gives the israelites like into the hand of an enemy and then they they call out to god and then god raises up a deliverer but very quickly they stop calling out for god yes and god raises up a deliverer anyway right. uh so it's definitely a downward downward uh lowering morality <laughs> and further into sin yeah cycle Yes. Of, of judges and, and repentance. That's and it's right. not perfectly down. Like you, you kind of get like up, down, yeah. uh, down. <laughs> really bad. Really the first, the first, the first judge is, is really the only one that there doesn't seem to be any moral failures associated with, which, and that's Othniel, uh, the son-in-law of Caleb. Yeah. But he would have been alive and known Joshua as well. So he's right. in that, he's kind of in that time period of he, the, the, the book of Judges talks about how Israel did, by and large, follow God and his ways throughout the lifetime of the elders that had served with Joshua. So Joshua dies, and that next generation still kind of does a good job at following God, but then very quickly it descends. So right. Othniel was right in that transition between, you know, the broader Israelites are starting to rebel, and God has sold us into the hand of our enemies. However, there's still some of us who are following him. Mm. But um, yeah, I think I think in terms of uh, when we look at the conquest and how successful or unsuccessful it was, we do have to kind of temper our our concepts of success by what God told them would happen if they followed Him. Right. Uh, so I mean, back back in the law, when God is talking to them, He even says that it's the conquest isn't going to happen all at once. They're not just going to go into the land and completely drive out all of those people groups because it says then the wild animals would take over the land. And what he's talking about is there's just not enough physical Israelites to populate all of those cities and all of the land at that time. So it's going to be a a step-by-step process by which as they expand and as they grow, they take over more and more territory and push out more and more of, of the evil from the land and, and of the idolatry from the land. Right. So that was the idea. And that's the idea behind even God leaving some of these nations uh, in place to so-called test the Israelites, right? right? To, to, to show himself strong in battle and to see what they would do. They then, the next generations, had a choice. Are we going to follow the ways of God and continue with the conquest or are we going to make covenants with these people and clearly in in judges chapter one it portrays it as they began to make covenants with the people because it was easier than following the conquest but the problem with that was not necessarily the people themselves like the canaanites it was the evil religious practices of the canaanites the fact that there was idols the fact that there was like land like um Joshua, Deuteronomy talks about tearing down 
standing stones. And we know that these standing stones had the names of idols and the names of false gods written all over them. And Israel was explicitly told to tear these down and wipe out the names of false gods from the land and instead erect the tent tabernacle so that God's name would be proclaimed throughout the land because he says, I am basically planting my flag. This is my land. Right. This is God's land. Yeah. And Israel doesn't do that. So the conquest is somewhat successful. They drive out some of the people groups. They get a lot of the cities. Yeah. So physically, it's somewhat successful, but spiritually, yeah. not, not successful. I mean, we see the angel of the Lord berate them. Right. In the flesh. <laughs> berate them in the flesh. What are you doing? That's right. So, and then we see these consequences and judges coming out. Yeah. Like you said, at this just gets ever, worse and worse. Ever downward spiral. Yeah. There's a lot of really cool things that we can learn uh, through Judges, and we're going to continue on that next week. Yes. Because we're going to finish up the book of Judges next week and go into Samuel. And guys, I love Samuel. Samuel <laughs> is so interesting. Uh, it's a massive transition in the history of Israel. It opens up the time period of the kings, but I think more importantly than that, it brings the word of God back into Israel. Because before Samuel, in the time period of the judges, there's no prophets. The people don't even know really who God is anymore. They don't know what they're doing. And then after Samuel, we have a ton of prophets. Even Saul prophesies, right? So we have this explosion of the word of God. So on next week's program, we're going to talk about that. For now, if you have any comments or questions, pop them down below and uh, get ready for next week. We'll see you there. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.